Welcome to the Insight Podcast. Joining me on the show today is David Russell. David is a professional and independent consultant working in the sector of justice, child sexual abuse, and harmful sexual behaviour. I met David recently at a series of talks about the future of masculinity, where he presented on incels or involuntary celibates, a topic that I knew nothing about two years ago. So I was really glad when David agreed to come on the show to talk about his research into incel culture and how to approach these conversations. Now, in the episode, we talk about themes that I haven't covered before on the show, namely sexual abuse, pornography, and the sharing of explicit images. So I wanted to give you a heads up about that. I talked to David about incels and their view of the world, why this community can appeal to boys and men, the importance of understanding and non-judgmental conversation, whether it's time to think about a new normal when it comes to pornography and sexual activity online, and much more. Enjoy the episode. David, what's an incel? So I think this is the the first point to mention is in terms of the, the kind of term incel is something that's come up um, quite a lot recently in terms of the media um, and, and seems to be something that's been talked about a lot. But I think actually we the thing that's really interesting is it's not a new kind of phenomenon. You know, this is something that's been around for a while, kind of the early 90s. Um, an incel is the kind of abbreviated term um, for an involuntary celibate. Um, and with that term, you know, really takes a number of different routes and different kind of avenues. Um, it's a predominantly online kind of subculture. Uh, originally, it was set up, um, interestingly, by a, a female um, who set the kind of groups up online uh, to support kind of people that felt isolated um, or had an inability to form an intimate relationship with others. But really quickly, that, that kind of accelerated and became quite dominated by, by men, um, and particularly men with quite um, harmful views and perspectives of women, um, and, and, and that really grew kind of significantly. Over the years, um, particularly in the States, there's been a lot of kind of links, um, you know, to, to incel ideology and instances of kind of mass violence. But I think that's the bit for me that, that, that certainly got me interested in, in this work was, was about actually not about focusing just on the instances, the minority instances of violence, but really thinking about actually the people communicating on these groups uh, and the numbers of, of, of this. And I think one of the themes I've certainly aiming to highlight, and I think the research is incredibly limited here, is to highlight the, the vulnerability aspects of these groups mm. and see it as a kind of form at times of, of kind of radicalisation, um, which I think is something that, you know, we have seen in some ways, but I think it's important we, we really start to consider those those early themes. Mm. So in, in terms of numbers then, like, do, do we have a gauge on that? Like, how many are there, how many are there of these men that are identifying in this way and getting involved on these forums and sharing that kind of information? So I think that's what's particularly tricky. Um, right, that, right. <laughs> you know, a lot of the, the kind of the, the research that's been done has been obviously we're dealing with an online population that often is anonymised. Um, mm. You know, we often can't identify kind of locations. 
um, within some kind of social media outlets, there are kind of, you know, groups that kind of claim to be in certain parts of the world, you know, and, and, and communicate. But to really evidence that's tricky. And I think it, it kind of highlights the need for further research to be kind of taken to, to really get a, a much better understanding of that. Mm. And, and so one question I want to come to is is how boys and men end up there. But I suppose before that, like, what is this looking like? What What's it looking like online? What kind of, you've touched upon it, but what messages are being shared? And of course, there are the, um, you know, the, you talked about those links to extreme acts of violence and things, but what's the more perhaps gen, day-to-day general way that we see it kind of presenting itself? I think that's the, the, a really good point because I think one of the things I've been really keen not to do um, is demonise um, this this area and not put it into a light of, of fear because I think it's really important that we, we keep the dialogue open and that we actually explore this and, and we understand better what we're dealing with. Um, and certainly, you know, that within these groups, there's a range, you know, some groups you can see senses of kind of self-support mechanisms where people are mm-hmm. supporting one another. But you also see high levels of that vulnerability of kind of suicidal ideation, uh, exchange of self-harm methods, you know, so really crossing over into a range of different themes, including kind of mental health and, and social isolation and loneliness. And then we get the kind of other forums that are much more extreme that graphically describe, you know, the kind of hatred towards women, sexually active uh, and conventionally attractive men, um, you know, and I think these themes such as kind of almost normalising rape, sexual assault, acts of violence, um, and showing kind of a retribution to society, you know, so seeing these instances as punishment to society and, and almost glorifying that. So I think you know, that the, there's a real spectrum here to consider. It's not a, a kind of one one angle, really. Yeah, yeah. And I had Rob Lawson on the show, who you know, um, who talked about the the Manosphere and the Red Pill community. And and so is there a lot of crossover here with that? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the kind of pill terminology can become quite complex, I think, because <laughs> I think we hear it in so many different ways. I think when we describe blue pill and black pill, I think these are things that we, you know, we absolutely kind of often more so associate with incel groups. And I think although red pill, for example, does fall into those, some of these belief systems, red pill is also something that's really crossed over. So even thinking of some of the systems, so the, the narrative of the matrix, you know, which, for example, Andrew Tate will describe in terms of the, the matrix which obviously comes from the, the 90s film, The Matrix, where we, you know, we take the red pill to, to, to see the world for what it truly is, opposed to the blue pill that allows us to live in this you know, belief that, that everything's great and actually there's an underlying motive quite linked to conspiracy theory, really. The mm-hmm. kind of red pill theme you know, as well comes up with a lot of kind of, um, kind of strong kind of far-right groups and, and kind of men's rights groups, you know, where... We kind of see what sometimes is described as kind of traditional forms of masculinity, which ultimately most of us would describe at times as harmful and, 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 and detrimental. Um, so I think there is a real link there. And I think sometimes those can become quite confusing, you know. Yeah. So what is the black pill? Because I lose track of all the different pills. <laughs> yeah. 
black pill is the one that's often kind of associated within kind of incel belief. And, and really the kind of key message is someone that, that believes in that black pill system often describes a feeling of, you know, there's, there's, there's no fix in society. Society's ah. broken. Um, and also there's, there's no ability to achieve success, you know, so it's based a lot on kind of what they believe is their own conventional attractiveness, you know, that they haven't potentially maybe got. Um, or also, you know, themes that, you know, the people that are, for example, blue-pilled will be successful and, and kind of control the, the systems around the world. So it really falls into that. But what's concerning for Black Pill is Black Pill's been referenced in a, in a range of kind of instances, for example, in the States, but also in the UK. You know, we had the case in Plymouth that was related to incel belief systems um, where we described Black Pill ideology, you know, which at the very end sometimes describes a, a theme of, you know, punish society or or, lie, or lay down and rot. So really supporting that kind of suicide, you know, kind of suicidal ideation approach to, to actually there's, there's no ability to succeed or, or go on really. So a real, but I think some, what we've done is we've looked at this and we often, I think we as a society glorify violence, you know, and I think violence seems to bring a level of attractiveness in the media it's what sells and i think that worries me on its own but mm. i think for me what's interesting is and the bit i've always been really aware of is when you look at these narratives that people are exchanging online that are alongside belief systems such as black pill i can't help but seeing the the the, the vulnerability aspects that often have been missed you know and in some prolific cases there's been some really significant links you know to adversity loneliness uh, mm. mental health, parental rejection, domestic violence, where we, you know, and we often talk about these in a range when came to children and services, you know, children's protection services will often describe these as impacting someone's choices in life and impacting, you know, potentially behaviour in children. And I think there's something in that too that we can't ignore here, you know, as, as, as those symptoms almost of, of vulnerability as well. Mm. I say, yeah, could we talk a bit more about that? Like how how boys and men um, end up here? Because I guess I've you know, I've listened and watched and tried to read about this this topic and my very basic general understanding and in thinking about how boys and men are struggling at the moment in terms of perhaps a lack of community and a lack of role models. Um and I suppose there's a whole other thing that a whole longer list that could come under that and then after that you kind of understand the appeal of certain communities because if there are groups or or a particular individual that is coming out and saying kind of embrace this embrace your kind of lone wolf side perhaps and you know you don't need anyone else you don't need women and that um the aspects of self-development you know getting into the gym and working hard and focusing on um your business perhaps and earning lots of money that that kind of thing um is that a basic understanding um what, what else can you say to that like how how boys are ending up here like wh where are they coming from and what is it about the appeal of these um forums and individuals that that's going on I think it's important when we when we start to describe some of these themes, I think it's sometimes we automatically, we tend to label, you know, we, we tend to go straight to label. So incel, for example, you know, we, we probably are guilty of it in terms of labelling this as a, as a thing. But actually, I think what, what it 
off what it the minute I've kind of started looking into this the first thing I think about is basic psychosexual development so Mm -hmm. actually the impact of gender role modeling you know in younger years and actually being being informed about what it is to be male I think first of all and the other part is you know that aspect of is you know masculinity what what does that word actually mean you know to, to young people now and and actually in certain young people that I've worked with over the years you can see the different experiences from you know being at home with family members male family members who masculinity they see that as a very narrow concept and if you don't fall into that category very strictly there's no there's nothing else you, you can't possibly be a man if you don't fall into these groups um whereas i think when we show symptoms uh, sorry other areas when we think about themes of more fluid options of masculinity where the expectations potentially are we just want the child to grow up healthy and happy mm-hmm. and actually the, how they express their uh, gender is, is entirely up to them i think that to me is there's something about that that's really critical here because I think it talks about as well that pressure, you know, and I think certainly, you know, some of this stuff around Tate, you know, and Peterson, for example, that, that's been mentioned quite a lot in the press at the moment. I think it does highlight just the expectations and also the pressure, you know, that, for example, social media puts on young people and et cetera, around the visual expectations of what it is to be an attractive male, you know, and, and actually what that looks like. So I think there's that, you know, I certainly think as well there's there's something in really the 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 theme around kind of loneliness and isolation. Um and I think definitely, you know, the the kind of impact of COVID, you know, when we when we when we saw what that, that done to a lot of young people, the pressure that put on mental health systems and, and services, you know, because of isolation, I think it's it's something that we've seen in this world for quite a bit of time. You know, and actually the damage that that can have of having that limited social interaction. And sometimes for young people to go online on these forums, you could actually maybe talk about anything. It's just actually someone's talking. And I think that's the bit as well. We, we can't assume everybody that goes on to these forums wants to become part of this cult, subculture or become incel. I think that would be really naive of us. I think what we have to acknowledge is that people potentially at times of, of that isolation are looking for any form of communication and, and any form of interaction with others. So I think, you know, there's there's a number of themes we have to keep in mind. Right. So you think if it's not an incel group, it could be any other group that they could have been attracted towards. It's just that community aspect. I think there's bits of that. I mean I think I think right. obviously there's there's potentially elements. I think there's a, a sense of, for example, a young male that doesn't feel conventionally attractive, um, potentially, you could almost understand, you know, where that mixture of frustration, isolation, how that could lead someone into exploring initially these forums. Um, and that may be innocently, that may be to seek support, to understand, well, how can I become attractive? How can I become what society tells me to become? And I think it's the same with sex education. When we think about children that and young people that, that, that get the source of education through pornography, for example, we know the harm and the detriment and the inaccurate messages that can give. So it's almost, I think that's why it does fit in with some of that stuff, like I say, around kind of basic psychosexual development and, and kind of ties in with that relationship, sexual health model. Mm-hmm. We hear a lot about the 
the YouTube algorithm and the Instagram algorithm, these different things that you you kind of show one video, you, you watch one video that perhaps isn't that extreme to begin with. It's kind of just appealing to that one little side of things. Yeah, how to be more attractive or how do I get bigger in the gym or something like that. But then the algorithms got you and then kind of slowly starts feeding you more aggressive and more extreme views. How much do you think that plays a role? Is that something you've looked into that you understand? Yeah, I think, you know, probably more so in terms of pornography, I think has been something right. that's, and, and my kind of career is that I've saw is, is those algorithms and, and actually how, you know, someone can innocently go on to look for sexual content and then actually really quickly be exposed within a short period of time <clears throat> to content that they potentially would never have had the knowledge base to search for, mm -hmm. but actually they've been visually exposed to it really, really quickly. And I think it's similar <clears throat> when we think of this this stuff, even thinking of um, TikTok, for example, that when you think of the, you know, we talk of a kind of thing around sexual informants. So things that we, we see that informs us about our identity, our, our body, our need, our urge and our attraction. And these are things typically we would see and then we would have breaks from and we maybe wouldn't see something for another hour or hour and a half or day that we were attracted to and we got that feeling about. When you think of these things within TikTok, for example, it's repetitive messaging. You know, so very, very quickly someone can be exposed to a high level of content and if that content is set to a particular theme, eventually it's going to reinforce, isn't it? You know, and I yeah. think there's there's something about that. And I think even, for example, things such as mainstream, you know, things like Love Island, you know, is, is one that comes up quite a lot. When we think of actually to be successful and to be sexually or, you know, intimately successful, we have to look like that. You know, and I think it's it's those strong messages, I think, sometimes that can be really problematic. Yeah, a completely unrealistic view of how men and women can look all the time, 24 hours a day, um, seven exactly. days a week. Yeah, and I guess it's that thing about, we can kind of get so bored, so can't we, so quickly, it becomes so normalised so quickly, the, the content like that might pop up on a pornographic website that, yeah, like if, if you've been looking at that kind of material, watching those videos from a very young age, then I suppose you just kind of have got used to a certain um, type of, of, of whatever, you know, experience that they're portraying. And then of, like you, you, you gravitate to something that's a little bit different and, oh, okay, right, this video is a bit different and then kind of goes from there. And so it's like you're needing that more extreme content to, I suppose, satisfy your um, desire? Is that is that one way to look at it? Yeah, and I think I think on the other bit is that that doesn't define someone's sexual identity. You know, I think, I think right. that's the other piece that's important is that actually the visualisation of the material that, you know, potentially in real, in real time or physically, physical contact sexual experiences, someone potentially wouldn't, feel the same way they do about that as they do when they see it online so you know you can see people becoming sexually attracted and sexually engaged in, in, in visual stuff online that actually doesn't define their sexual identity and attraction in, in, in kind of physical terms so I think it's important but it's similar to that with, with incel groups you know the the content that's exchanged not everybody potentially on those groups will have those beliefs 
that engaging in those conversations and, and actually, you know, which are predominantly supported, you can see why these messages sometimes can become obscured, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking back to what we were talking about, but life was so much simpler, wasn't it? 200 years ago, maybe if you were in a, a small town or village, you knew everyone and the prettiest girl in the village was the prettiest girl in the village. The most handsome man in the village was the most handsome man. And like now though, we've got all these options of what we could look like and how we could have augmented our body and you know just have to get on a dating app and be swiping through all these other options it's just oh it's tough out there isn't it it is and i think one of the things i always talk about is i think it's you know we we often make that reflection of you know we describe things that are abnormal or, or strange behaviors or harmful even behaviors but maybe it's time we start thinking about, you know, that term, the new normal. So mm. actually we've developed this technology, we've developed this world around us. And, and you have to start to ask, you know, how can we possibly start to think what's normal, so- socially accepted behaviour now would have not been normal, you know, 15 years ago even. So I think it's, you know, it's about that in terms of how we start to make that shift and, you know, how we, how we yeah, start to, to change the way it works. Yeah. I'm getting a sense of like a really um, broad and balanced view that you have on these topics, David. Um, I don't know what it is, but it's kind of like you, some of the things you already mentioned about how we approach the conversation with um, people that are in, in self forums. And, and that what you've just said about like understanding that our perhaps our sexual behaviours and sexual desires have evolved over time and now we're in a new normal. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering where that could take us now, but it just, I, f- I find that really interesting just that you've, you've got that understanding. And so I don't know, what is the new normal then? And like, um, well, I don't know. What's, what's the new normal? <laughs> I think it's, I wish I had the answer to that. Um, <laughs> I think I do. I think what I would say is I think that, you know, when we, when we think about, you know, these different forms of interaction. So for example, flirtation. You know, flirtation would have typically taken place in real terms, in terms of physical examples. You know, we would have had that, you know, experience between two people. I think now we don't have that. You know, we, we, we know that we've even within adult populations. Yes, there is elements of it, obviously, but I think predominantly a lot of flirtation is done online. Yeah. But when you think of the way the laws set, when we, you know, when we start to think about, we give children devices to learn on, we give children devices practically to set exams on, you know, we put all the trust and all our trust into technology, but we still think it's illegal for children to sexually communicate with each other online. Now, I think that is obviously not without its controversies and its issues, but when we think about COVID, for example, we have children who are at the height of sexual development you know, they're at their prime and, and they're wanting to engage with other each other. It was a no-brainer to me that we were going to see an increase in sexual communication between peers online because mm. actually, where else was that behaviour going? You know, so I think if, we, if we're if we asking them to put the, a lot of their social behaviours online, I don't understand why we, we struggle to see the concept of, well, some of those social behaviours feed into the sexual behaviours, which ultimately... We've said it's okay to do online. So I think, you know, we, we do have to really think about the wider messages that we're giving young people, um, you know, and, and I think that that's something for me that within that 
term, and I don't know if it's a new normal, and, and I'm not saying for a minute it's right, <clears throat> and I'm also not saying I like it because I don't, but I think, you know, how long are we going to fight against it opposed to actually how are we going to engage with young people and engage with technology in productive ways um, and, and make sure we're keeping children safe, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I understand. And yeah, I guess that if someone's listening, perhaps a parent of a, a teenager might be thinking, yeah, well, how can I, they might not like the thought of that, but understand at the same time that maybe teenagers are in, are going to engage in that. And so how would you keep them safe and how do you make sure it's appropriate and where, where do you set the boundaries? And I suppose this links as well to pornography use as well. Like what is what is acceptable, what is normal, what's okay, and when does it then actually border into something that can be more harmful for yourself and others? It's so complex, isn't it? Yeah, I think one of the things I always talk about is our kind of, should we be starting to look at approaches of harm reduction? So when we start to think about, for example, we for years and years went into schools and told children, don't take images of yourself, don't exchange images. This year, I think we've seen some of the highest numbers of self-generated imagery online of children and young people. Is it time that we start thinking a bit differently? Um, if children and young people are going to continue to do this, do we need to start thinking about well, how can we support them? How can we keep them safe? You know, and some of the conversations already within a harm, harm reduction approach, you know, are things like make sure your face isn't in some pictures. Um, you know, make sure you're, you're, you're not identifiable because we know that a lot of children and peers are then blackmailed, um, higher risk of exploitation online, um, often with these things. So I think it's, you know, is there approaches within harm reduction similar to pornography? Pornography is not going anywhere. It's worth a fortune. It's an industry that is, you know, through the roof. The level of hit rates that, um, you know, Pornhub, for example, gets on a daily basis, it isn't disappearing. And actually, I think the worst thing we could do is make every form of pornography illegal because actually then we put it underground, we drive it underground, and we don't know what people are doing with it. Um, and I would worry then we would see more sexual dysfunction um, opposed to actually being able to help and keeping the conversation open because I think that's the important piece as well is ultimately we all come from different angles. We want to keep children and young people safe. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Because I suppose a uh, hundred years ago, yeah, yeah the, co the conversation around just sex before marriage was much like this, wasn't it? Like, no, no, we just, <clears throat> people are trying to stop it. Like, no, we shouldn't be doing that. All those kind of controls around it. But then once we kind of accepted that that might be happening and people might be having, of course, hopefully age appropriate, safe, consensual sex, all of that. But we understand that that's going on. So now we go into schools and teach them about how to have sex and how, what consent means and all those things. So it's not like we're saying you shouldn't be doing this. We're saying this is how to do it safely and in an appropriate manner. And so you're saying, so for some of this online world, we could, we could apply those same rules for that as well. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's about not, you know, I think it's about putting the emotion into it because I think sometimes, you know, when we, when we, pre when we go in and we, wave the finger and we talk about these things we sometimes we don't realize just how emotional technology is to a young person's life you only have to take a phone off a young person you know i've got <laughs> nieces and nephews and i think you know if you, you can see how how much they depend at times on these devices which is the bit i 
hate, you know, I, I can't stand it in terms of how much they need these things. But ultimately, it's something that is really emotive and it's emotional. So we have to put the emotion into the education as well around the use of technology and, and really think about, for example, you know, like we've mentioned, those, those instances of, of, of viewing pornography, you know, various studies have been done that were showing young people by, you know, kind of 14 years old have seen I've seen a high level of pornographic material. We need to be clear about the messages they're getting from that, you know, and I think rather than say it's wrong and it's, it's bad, we need to be doing something a bit better than that, you know? Right, right. Interesting. So the conversation has kind of go, gone in a direction I don't think either of us expected, did we? But that's absolutely fine. And I, I mean, it's great that I get to hear a, uh, a viewpoint that I hadn't even considered in, in terms of this kind of this topic. So I really appreciate that. Um, if we did bring it back to, to incels, which is where we first started off the conversation, I don't know, is perhaps there anything that we, that we haven't covered so far in terms of that, that community? Because I think we've, we've talked about how people might end up there. Um, I do want to ask you what to do, you know, if you start noticing these more extreme behaviours in a friend or family member. But I don't know, is there anything that you, you think that we haven't covered in, 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 in this area that you'd like to share, perhaps from your own research, from other people that you know? I think it's just, again, really important to, to reiterate that it is so under-researched. You know, I think right. there's elements that are researched in Incel um, and there's some fantastic kind of publications, you know, um, you, you'll be aware of Laura Bates, um, who did, you know, the book Men Who Hate Women, again, really looked at this in, in quite a magnified way, you know, and it was fascinating. And I really admire Laura Bates in terms of one of the themes that she highlighted was around the vulnerability. So we're very, I think within like the first few pages of the book, one of the points she made at the very beginning was around, um, she, you know, mentioned vulnerable boys. You know, and I thought that was really interesting. And I think for me, that's the bit I'm really keen to focus on is the, the vulnerability. I became interested in incel and, and, and how we can look at this through the kind of violence against women and girls strategy. So I'm really involved in, in, in that within the equally safe strategy. And, and I've, I've had in this kind of current role responsibility for really looking at how we involve men and boys in the conversation. And I think there was so many crossover themes here about prevention, disruption and early intervention that I think is really relevant. And I think it's important we don't just focus on those minority groups that commit acts of mass violence, mm. but we think of the harm that these groups are doing as a collective with some of the narratives and the, the conversations they have. So I think there's, you know, for me, that's really important, I suppose, just to echo is, you know, we have to start considering the routes to get in there, you know, and actually how young people and adults are, are getting to a place that they feel this is an outlet. Yeah, yeah. So understanding that vulnerability. And, and it's refreshing to hear someone that is saying, I don't have all the answers. There, there needs to be more research. We're, we're not quite sure how to approach this yet. We need to do more work instead of what we see a lot of online, which is this is how we should deal with this problem. This is how, this is what we need to put in place. Whereas actually it's like, right, we need more understanding here and we, we need more dialogue. And I suppose is there, 
Is there parallels with kind of with with drug abuse and things like that? People, you know, we can't be so quick to to blame someone that is addicted to drugs. You know, who who knows what they had growing up? Who knows what they're exposed to? Who knows why it is that they um, are addicted to drugs? Like, it's just it's it's a complex topic, and we can't be we shouldn't be so quick to judge people, should we? Yeah, I think even you know I've done a lot of work with any kind of harmful sexual behaviour. Uh, and a lot of my practice has, has been in that that world. Mm. And one of the things I used to always go on about is the harmful sexual behaviour is one part of the person, it's one part of that young person. Actually, we need to look at the levels and the roots of getting to that place of displaying that level of behaviour. Mm. The actual intervention very often didn't really often cover the incident or the behaviour itself. It looked at someone's need it looked at the level of need it looked at the gaps within their development um you know often it would look at aspects like say of vulnerability and those were the themes similar to substance use you know when, when we describe that we often see that it's impacted from adverse you know adversity um it can be impacted from financial again isolation and um, poor mental health well, these are the things for me that need to be tackled rather than cons- worrying about the labels or the behaviours. We need to be thinking about how can we make sure this doesn't happen again, you know, but also even better than that, how can we make sure it doesn't happen at all? So, you know, what's, what, when we see these things like young people that are isolated, um, we should be thinking about well, what can we put in place, you know, to, to help them? Because sometimes I think young people that are quiet and isolated I think sometimes get ignored because I think sometimes we think they are resilient. Um, and I think we, we really have to be careful that we don't misinterpret resilience, you know, from someone that's potentially shut down and isolated. Um, and the quiet child's always a child that's usually left, you know, whereas the one that's kicking or, or shouting or screaming is the one that we usually all run to. So I think that's the bit for me as well that's really important. Yeah, it's common, you know, I've seen it in schools and perhaps I'm guilty of it myself as well. You know, the child that shouts the loudest and needs the most or is displaying behaviours that warrant my attention most quickly, of course, they're going to be getting it rather than the uh, the quieter children that we can sometimes leave behind. And yeah, that vulnerability, like we've said, and there's the, what I've really disliked in the past year with was with the kind of the rise of certain figures and how you know, we saw um, assemblies being put on in schools and it's from from what I saw on Twitter or X, it's kind of this message around, you know, we need to teach boys how wrong this is, like this is toxic masculinity and, and things like that. And it was kind of like, the where's the why? Where's the why? Why is no one asking why the, um, these figures are appealing to people? Why is no one asking why that that kind of version of masculinity is appealing to to the boys because there's a reason isn't there so that's what we need to get down to that's what we need to find out but but you've already talked about that so maybe we could talk about um like what what would what might we do if we notice some kind of more extreme viewpoints or more extreme um behaviors perhaps in a in a friend or a, a family member or something like that and i'm not talking because i'm not talking about this is something else i've seen that you know, a, a young man might really start to get into training and people are kind of like, oh, he's training a bit too hard and he, oh, he's just like obsessed. And I'm like, is that really such a bad thing that they're trying to work on themselves and exercise or or maybe they're really getting into 
uh, nutrition and they're kind of, they are maybe obsessing over it a little bit and like looking at all the different recipes and what they can cook and they're measuring and counting calories and all that stuff. And it's like, okay, this isn't actually that harmful. They're, they're maybe practicing some form of discipline and they're growing themselves. Like I don't, I'm not sure that that's a huge problem as long as it's not affecting the people around them. But I suppose what I'm talking about is, yeah, if, if we're noticing someone that is displaying something that is more extreme or maybe hanging around with or watching content that is more extreme, how might we approach those conversations? So I think firstly, it's, I think safety has got to be number one. So I right. think we have to firstly make sure everyone's safe. And that includes that person, um, you know, their own safety, but also includes, uh, you know, the safety and risk to others. You know, typically kind of incel themes have often been associated with kind of prevent, you know, in terms of anti-terror and kind of radicalization, you know, and I think those are the kind of safeguards and those extreme instances that we would probably ex- describe. What I think is really important is that we also consider a child protection or adult protection process alongside potentially referrals to things like prevent or to police because I think particularly with young people we have to highlight as we have already these vulnerabilities you know that it's going to take more than just a referral or a report to police and we have to be aware of the kind of safeguarding measures as well um, and potentially how we can then put child protection processes in place to help and support parents and carers to keep the child and everybody safe as well. So I think that's the immediate thing is safety. Mm. Um, I think, you know, I always go on a bit, I've worked with some, a range of different people um, within the justice system, children, young people, adults. And I think one of the values that I always hold really, really central um, is non-judgmental. And I think that's so important. I think, a lot of these themes, they can be some of the hardest things we have to sit and listen to in a room. But actually by giving someone that space, they can express these things and actually have give us the narrative so we can then combat that with evidence and, and help them unpick that. You know, and I think remove the shame is also critical. So, you know, a lot of the work I've done over the years has been really shame has been in the room a lot, you know, in terms of behaviours and beliefs. So I think removing that's really helpful and, and also making sure that they don't feel judged and that they can actually express these views because actually we need to be able to hear them to be able to understand what the true belief system is. So, you know, I think that's really important. Right. That's really, really useful kind of framework to think about. Yeah, the the safety first, but then that non-judgmental approach, which of of course in so many different instances is is the way to go, isn't it? So yeah, appreciate you saying that. Um and you've mentioned a couple of times about your your different areas of work. And so I think that's one of my last questions for you, David. It's just I'm interested in, you know, with the with the line of work that you're in, which is around sexual abuse, harmful sexual behaviour, um, I suppose you, yeah, you've got to have some tricky conversations. You've got to look at some not very pleasant content, all this kind of stuff. And like, what, how do you, how do you switch off and how do you separate the work from personal life? Cause there might be someone listening to that. That's also in a, a career that they find difficult to, to switch off and like, yeah, compartmentalize and stuff. So, so how do you do it? I mean, I'd say I do it well, but I don't know if my, 
partner and my family would say <laughs> very well, but I think I do it well. Um, I think having supportive people is critical, you know, and right. I, think, I think that's really been important. And I think that's both personal and professional. So, you know, my life, I've got a lot of people in my life, my partner, I've got, you know, family members that I can not talk to about the subject, but they know, you know, they, there's that kind of rules. I've been with my partner for 10 years and I've always worked, you know, worked in the prison service, I've worked with children protection services. And it's almost, we just have a connection there that they just know when it's been that kind of day. And, you know, I think it's that unwritten thing that really is helpful. Um, and also that, that need to have, there's that professional supervision, you know, that should be really kind of quite clinical and, and, and really unpick those cases. But I think I always call it personal professional supervision, which is, professional with a colleague that really lets you un, unhinge <laughs> and really say how you actually really feel you know and I think that's important you know and, and be able to do that um, and I've got you know a, a number of colleagues that are really kind of considered as good friends as well that we can do that with with each other and I think those debriefs are really helpful um, because we're only human you know and we do feel as well so I think that's important sometimes we to express these these different feelings and also have a different take on actually have you thought about this? Mm -hmm. So I think the role of that supervision is really, really important. Um, and I think if that's something people aren't getting, um, I think they have to really source that because I think I certainly have been so, so lucky, you know, that, that I've had great experiences of that. And I think not having that, I think would be really tricky. Um, and I also have kind of in my level was had, um, horses in my life. Um, so I've, I've, got a, a number of horses that we compete um through the summer um and we, we do a lot of you know work with across the county shows which is something that just allows me to kind of switch off and use a different bit of my brain um which is nice as well yeah yeah oh, interesting interesting I didn't know that um but yeah that that one colleague at a friend just just one it can be invaluable can't it um yeah just one way. It's not like you need to organise a a formal sit down meeting. Like let's debrief after that. Let's talk about it. It's just like a uh, having a chat over a cup of tea, and you you just flesh it out, don't you? And like they say, a problem shared is a problem halved. I think there's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? That just just by voicing what you're going through, it just it can take a huge weight off your shoulders. So interesting. Those three points really interesting. Some kind of supervision at work, a valuable friend, that personal professional relationship, and and a hobby as well. Yeah. <laughs> right. So there are three questions I ask every guest at the end of of an episode. Um, yeah. They can be kind of quite quick fire. They can be short answers. Um, the first one is: What's one lesson you wish you'd have been taught when you were younger? So this one for me is. Um, I think I wish I had known at the time there was alternative routes to education and careers. So at school, I wasn't particularly academic. I wasn't interested in school. I didn't like school. Um, and I left school um, quite quickly when I could. Um, and really done a whole circle. I'd done everything back to front. I always talk about, you know, I joined the prison service. Um, you know, I had very limited kind of qualifications. Um, and then you know, done that kind of training on the job model, went to Bernardo's and got a fantastic opportunity to go back to university, which I took um, and was brilliant, you know, and I think I think if I'd known that, I think 
you would have felt better when you were growing up. And I think it's something I always tell young people, like even in my family and, and, and arranges that you don't have to do that traditional route. You know, there's so many different avenues. Um, and I think the, the life experience I picked up doing that route was really beneficial to the career I'm in now. It, it really helped. So, yeah, so that's my thing. And is there a habit that you've project, perhaps introduced to your life or or just something that you do every day or every week that you'd swear by that makes you feel good and could maybe other people listening might think, oh, I could add that to my day as well and that make, that could make me feel great too? <clears throat> I think I've got a number of habits. I don't know how many of them are good ones. I think, um, yeah, I think there's a few. I mean, I think certainly for me that, as I mentioned, that the horses, you know, is, is a real outlet for me. Um, I take, you know, and I'm, I'm very competitive. So when we, we you know, we, we work really hard to get them looking the best to go out and compete. And that, that really does take that away. And I think, I think having something like that, that means a lot to you, you know, I think it's really, really important. Um, because it allows you, I don't have to think about switching my brain off the minute I turn up, you know, to the horses. I know that actually my brain just automatically goes in a different place. Yeah. So I think having that something that you can really, care about and really want to do I think is really really important yeah yeah and the last one if you could give everyone in the world one book which book would you give them so the one I've put is a book by Lisa Downing which is called Selfish Woman and this book you know I just found fascinating and basically it really everything we've talked about in a weird and wonderful way it really challenges kind of I suppose, societal expectations on gender and also some of the, the kind of the themes in which that plays across society. I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of learning to be done in that book. And I think you can read it numerous times and pick something else out of it. It really makes you reflect. So, yeah, that'd be mine. Nice one. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time to come on the show, David. It's been a, it's been great. Um, we we definitely went down a, a road that I wasn't expecting, but I really appreciate your time and appreciate the fact that you've um, made me think about some topics in a in a different way. And I think that's always really, um, well, it's what this show is supposed to be about. So thank you. No, thank you for having us. Sam. That's been great. Thank you. Right, thank you all for tuning in. I really hope you found my conversation with David insightful. As always, if you enjoyed the episode, please share it with friends, family and colleagues who you think would find it helpful. And if you haven't already, please support the podcast by following and rating the show on whichever app you're listening on. Thank you again, and I look forward to bringing you another episode soon.